0: Last year, um, there was a a heartbreaking photograph that captured the world, and I was I was in the UCSB library, kind of preparing for this morning, and there was an article kind of um, bringing back to light what this photograph was, and it was the photograph of Alan Kurdi. He was the Syrian boy who washed up on the shores of a Turkish beach resort it was a photograph that literally captured and shocked the world, and rightly so. It was, and it was the story about Alan and his family fleeing the conflicts in, in Syria, and, and he didn't make it, and a lot of his other family members didn't make it. And you see a story like that, and you're just immediately gripped and reminded with the fact that this world we live in, it can be an incredibly sad place. I came across another story about Jay-Z and Beyonce. If you're unfamiliar with Jay-Z and Beyonce, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> Jay-Z is a, a rapper and producer, a very successful um, uh, person. He's married to Beyonce, an actress and musician. And they have a little girl named Blue Ivy. And Blue Ivy uh, accompanied her mom and dad to a, a music award Last week. And Twitter just blew up. And I came across this article about folks on Twitter, which is this social media platform that kind of connects you to all different types of people around the world, that grown adults were making fun of a four year old for how she looked. Like women, moms, tweeting about how they thought Blue Ivy was an ugly little girl. And you read a story like that and you're going, man, this, this world can be an incredibly cruel place, can't it? You know, if I love this time of year... And it's very strange for me to be in the, in the Pacific time zone rather than the central time zone for college football. I mean, I haven't get used to watching football at 9 a.m. <laughs> rather than like noon. But this time of year, for all of you college football fans, is great. It's exciting. College football season kicked off last week. NFL season's right around the corner. But all of that's kind of been overshadowed. If, you, if you're watching the news at all about um, Colin Kaepernick, He's the 49ers quarterback um, who's kind of he, he's refused to, to stand and participate in the national anthem. And, and again, this is no judgment of whether or not that's right or wrong, or what you I have no thoughts on those things. All that to say is this. When you see a story like that for a person who's standing up and trying to give voice to people who have been oppressed and who have experienced racism and injustice, you're immediately struck with this reality that this world that we live in, it is a broken place relationally. Like there is dysfunction horizontally, right? And here's the thing, you can... You can see these global headlines that kind of come across our news feeds. And for some of you this morning, those stories aren't just stories that you click and then go to the next story. For some of you here this morning, the loss of a child or, or losing someone that you love It's very real for you this morning. Or for some of you, being bullied and being made fun of for how you look or how you sound or what you don't have. Like that cuts really deep for some of you this morning. And some of you know in a very, you know, palatable way, what it feels like to be oppressed, to experience injustice, to be the recipient of just racial slurs and attacks. And here's the question this morning, what do we do with all the brokenness? Like, how do we overcome and endure this world that we live in, that is fallen, that is full of sadness, heartache, brokenness, evil? How do we overcome, and how do we over, or how how do we actually endure? And if you're new with us this morning, we've been in a series. Kyle, um, the pastor at Christ Brez, he's been doing a series on the Lord's Supper which is a meal that Jesus that Jesus instituted for his people. And it's a very real feast to to strengthen and to encourage the followers of Jesus. And so Kyle's been looking at different aspects of the Lord's Supper to help explain what it is and why it's actually important for us. He's looked at communion, he's looked at Eucharist last week, this idea of Thanksgiving, it's a meal that we are to give thanks for. And this morning, what I want us to see from Revelation 19 is this, that this is a real feast that anticipates our future reality. Paul tells us when he gives us instruction about how to partake of the Lord's Supper, he says this, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, or until He returns. And here's what I want us to think about this morning as we look at Revelation 19. This weekly feast of bread and wine, it conveys every single week a massive promise of hope. And here's the promise. Jesus, as our conquering bridegroom, is returning for his bride, and when he returns, all the sadness, all the heartache, all the sorrow, all the evil, all the injustice will finally be done away with. The marriage feast of the Lamb is the promise that has enabled Christians for the better part of 2,000 years to endure and to overcome in this fallen and broken world. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And before we do that, let me pray for us and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come this morning uh, with heavy hearts all of us, whether those hearts are heavy because of sorrow and sadness, whether those hearts are just deeply anxious because it's the start of a new school year. And so the the pressure to perform and make grades is upon us. Our hearts are heavy because of our own sin. The ways in which we do not do the things that we should. And we find ourselves unable to do the things that we know we should be doing. We come with guilt and shame. Some of us come incredibly lonely. And we hide in our loneliness for the fear that someone might actually find me out. And realize that I'm a fraud. So we're deeply insecure. And yet we are here. Helpless and needy people. And that is a great place to be because you love to feed helpless and needy children. And so, Father, we would ask um, by your Holy Spirit that you would take your word, which is the bread of life, and would you feed us? Would you nourish us? Would you, um, by your grace, strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, would they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Revelation, it it really is just a letter that the Apostle John wrote to seven different congregations. And he wrote this letter to be actually an an encouragement. Because the original recipients of this letter in Revelation, the recipients and their children actually, were going through all sorts of persecution and trials and suffering. And it was all surrounded by this idea that if you did not bow the knee to Caesar, if you did not pay homage to the Roman Empire, that rather you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and you identified as a follower of him, then the things that could be done to you as a follower of Jesus was unbelievable. The list was long. I mean, if you identified with Jesus as one of these early recipients, you might have your head decapitated. Or you might be thrown to wild beasts. I mean, the, the list of torture and torment that the early Christians faced was unbelievable. And so the Apostle John, as he's writing this letter to seven congregations to actually encourage them to overcome, to endure, and here's the great paradox, that any other organism that would, have in, like, that would have gone through this type of persecution and suffering, it would have immediately killed that movement. But the great paradox of Christianity is that the more Christians were persecuted and the more that they endured the suffering, not only did it not kill the movement, it actually made it thrive. And so the question at the heart of Revelation 19 is this, is how have the people of God throughout the ages, who have undergone all sorts of trials and temptations, having lived in the effects of a fallen and broken world, how have they endured? And here's what I want to suggest to you. They've endured because of the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is how they have endured. Heaven in Scripture is often presented in many different metaphors, many different images. But one of the dominant ways in which heaven is presented in Scripture is through this picture of a bridegroom and a bride. A bridegroom who pursues his bride and he's coming back for her to take her to this big wedding feast. The bridegroom is Jesus and the bride is, the people of God, the church. And so here's what I want to look at this morning. I, I just want to look at two things. I want to look at what, what the feast is and why it's actually connected to this. And then look at the bridegroom and why it's important for our gaze to be upon him this morning and how that actually connects to the Lord's Supper. So two things this morning, the feast and the bridegroom. In Revelation 19, we're getting this picture of what's in store for all of those who've put their trust in the Lamb, who've put their trust in the bridegroom. And heaven erupts at the arrival of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Like, it erupts in praise and hallelujah. So here's the question. What does heaven know (laughs) that we need to know this morning? What does heaven see that we actually need to see and understand and believe? First, they understand that this marriage feast, that when the bridegroom comes and he installs this marriage feast at the end, it's a feast or a party that will never end. Now you are classic Presbyterians right now because that is the most joyless response I have ever seen. The wedding feast is a party that's never going to end. Jesus. It's much better. Didn't want to scare you. That's okay. John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote the Gospel of John. And he records Jesus' very first miracle in I don't know if you remember that miracle, but Jesus is at a wedding. It's a wedding in Cana. And the unthinkable happens at this wedding. The wine runs out. Now, I'm beginning to to realize that you Californians, you love your wine. Now, think about that for a moment. Think about the vineyards drying up and the wine running out. Jesus is at a wedding where the wine runs out. And John tells us that what Jesus did next manifested his very glory. And you know what he did? He turned water into wine. And the master of the feast was so shocked at what Jesus did. He came up to him and said, Look, (laughs) where we do things, we always serve the best wine first. And then when everybody's drunk freely, in other words, when they've had too much to drink, and they're not going to realize what's coming next, they won't care. Then we give them the bad stuff. He goes, but you have given them the very best. And John tells us that that manifested the very glory of God, that Jesus turned water not into just wine, but the very best wine. Now, what are we getting a picture of? Why would Jesus turn the water into wine? What Jesus is doing at Cana is giving us a foretaste of what he is really like. Jesus is all about healing our deep satisfaction and hunger. The feast that Jesus brings at his wedding is a feast that will never run out. The wine is never going to dry up and the party is never going to end. That's because the wedding feast of the Lamb is the only feast that will deeply satisfy your very soul. So what does that mean for us today? Well, it means that you can stop looking at the little feast here in this life to satisfy you what only that feast can do. Think about that for a moment. Perhaps the little feast that you go to is that feast of money and the idea of having a little bit more security. But here's the thing, you never actually get enough to where you feel like you're satisfied. I've never met someone who has come and said, you know what, I finally got to the place in my bank account where there's enough. never met anybody like that. Because if that was the case, people would just stop investing their money to actually make more money. It's a feast that will never satisfy Or perhaps you run to the feast of comfort. It's kind of where I like to hide. But how much comfort do you need to experience before you feel contentment? Like real rest. Or the feast that you run to perhaps this morning is that feast where you are constantly working to get everybody to like you. I'm the new guy in town. You don't think my anxiety to be liked has gone up just a little bit? Or that feast to validate your self-worth? And for college students, whether that's through your grades or through performing for mom and dad back home, Or the professor here who wants his students to actually love his course, and so he's got a room full of them. What John is showing us is that the only feast that will ultimately satisfy us is the marriage feast, because that's the feast where the wine's never going to run out and the party's never going to end. It's the feast where unending joy and pleasure and happiness and satisfaction is truly found. That is precisely what this Lord's Supper always points us to. That when you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. That one day, someday, Jesus is going to come back for his bride. And he's going to bring her to his wedding feast where she will hunger and thirst no more. It means that we can stop running to these little feasts to satisfy what only that feast will do. But it also means that you can live in this fallen and broken world and still be okay until he returns. Think about that. It means that your breakup, it doesn't have to be the death of you. Like you can actually live in singleness and be okay. Because guess what? Marriage, like earthly marriage, was never meant to be the thing that ultimately satisfies you. And so you can live in singleness and be okay. It also means that if you don't get that promotion or that job, But you have to actually continue to work in that place that's a little bit mundane, a little bit boring, and not as sexy as some other jobs. You may not be making as much as you would like. It actually means that you can be at that job and be faithful and work hard and do your work and still be okay. Because guess what? Are we called to work? Absolutely. But our work was never meant to be the thing that actually satisfies us. If the wedding feast of the Lamb is coming, it means that is the place where our hearts will finally be at rest. This is why we take the Lord's Supper weekly. It's a feast that points us to the greater feast. It is a feast with the promise that one day the wine will never run out, the party will never end, And the celebration and joy of being with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will finally be a reality. That reality exists now, but we only see in part. But one day, we will see fully. What about the bridegroom? What do we learn about him Who comes back for his bride? Revelation 19 is the culmination of a love story that began way back in Genesis. But it's a love story that I would guess no one in here would ever consider writing. And here's what I want you to think about this morning Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. And as the perfect bridegroom, guess what? He can have anyone he wants. And guess who Jesus goes after? Jesus goes after a bride who will constantly seek other lovers. This is a love story that no one in here would ever consider writing. And I want us to look at two aspects of the bridegroom and see just so we can see just how remarkable he truly is. The first is this, and this may sound like stating the obvious, but Jesus, he shows up on his wedding day. And I want you to think about that for a second. Revelation 19 tells us that Jesus shows up for the marriage feast, for his wedding feast. But I have given Jesus every reason not to show up. I have given Jesus every reason to abandon me, to forsake me. I've given Jesus every reason not to show up on his wedding day, but Jesus does not show up late. He does not get cold feet. And he is not embarrassed or disappointed with who he sees at the end of the aisle. Look again at verse 10. John, the apostle, after he's given this great vision of the marriage feast, he falls down and he worships the angel. John commits adultery right in front of Jesus. What I mean by adultery is the Bible always says that when we worship anyone other than God, we are committing adultery. Adultery. We are seeking another lover. And John has just seen this great vision of the bridegroom and the wedding feast. And he falls down and he worships the angel right in front of the bridegroom. This is like a bride on her wedding day, leaning over and kissing the best man right in front of the groom. And the angel says, what are you doing? Do not worship me, worship God. And here's what I want you to see, that the bridegroom, Jesus, He shows up, and He marries us anyway. Even though we've given Him every reason to abandon us, Jesus comes to marry messed up, broken, sinful people and make them His bride. Jesus shows up, When two spouses have argued all the way to church and are angry at each other for weeks on end, he still shows up. He shows up when parents have just lost it with their kids. and are deeply irritated and impatient and have had evil, evil thoughts about what they really want to do with their kids. He shows up. He shows up even when you've committed adultery or when you've been addicted to things. Jesus shows up to marry messed up, broken, sinful people. Why? Because you are his bride, and he loves you. But he not only shows up on his wedding day, but he also comes... To beautify. Look again at verses 7 and 8. Jesus takes all that is impure, all that is ugly, all that is sin, all that is shameful and disgraceful, and he covers it. Jesus gives the bride something she does not have a wedding garment to cover her shame, to cover her guilt, to cover all of her ugliness and impurities this garment makes her beautiful what is it look again at verse 8 and we'll start back in verse 7 let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints now what does that mean because that sounds kind of problematic Because I thought the beauty of God's people was always because of what God has done, right? How do we make sense of this? Well, throughout the Bible, God is always the one who clothes his people with the garments of salvation. He's the one who always covers them with robes of his righteousness. The fine linen that the bride wears, it does involve her actions, but those actions, and Here's the key. Those actions have always been given to her by God. And think about it like this. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we cannot save ourselves. And I know that if you've sat under Kyle's preaching for any length of time, that point has been hammered home relentlessly. We cannot save ourselves. We are only saved by grace through faith. And then Paul goes on to say that the righteous deeds of the saints have been prepared beforehand by whom? Us? No. God. God does everything. So He clothes us in the righteous deeds of the saints that He's already prepared for us to actually walk into. But even to pick up the language of Revelation, John tells us in Revelation 21 that the bride... Looks like Jasper. And if you're familiar at all with Revelation, John has already used that picture in Revelation chapter 4, where he actually describes God as having the appearance of Jasper. You see what's happening here. The bride is clothed with the beauty and the radiance. Of Jesus, that Jesus shares His own beauty and His own radiance with His bride. He gives her something that she does not have. I don't know if you've ever come across the—it's a little book called "Letters to an Unborn Child." It's written by a guy named David Ireland, and David Ireland had a, a neurological disease that that was basically. It basically crippled him and was going to take his life. And, and when he was diagnosed with it, he found out that his wife was pregnant. But the disease was going to overtake him before he was actually going to meet his, his child. And so he wrote letters. Letters to an unborn child. And there's one chapter in this little book that's kind of designated um, about his mom. About the child's mom. About David Ireland's wife. And there's some incredibly funny stories. um, But he tells a story about what it's like for them to go on a date. I'm going to read you this little section. And again, David's in a wheelchair, and he um, can't hardly do anything for himself. He says, Your mother is very special. Few men know what it is like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner, especially when it entails What it does for us. It means that she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage and put me in the car. Take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down, get back into the car and drive off to the restaurant. And then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car and folds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, sits me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant, then takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit to have dinner and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. And when it is over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out of the car again, and reverses the same routine. And when it is all over, with real warmth, she looks at me and she says, Honey, thank you for taking me out on a date. That is a picture of what Jesus does for his bride. Who we are is because of Jesus and his work for us. He makes us beautiful and he stands back and he goes, wow. And here's what I want you to see this morning. Jesus comes to every part of your soul where there is sin, where there is deep shame, where there is hurt, where there is ugliness. And he says, you are the love of my life. And I will always delight in you. As a dear friend of mine once said, Jesus always looks at his bride with honeymoon affection. When Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns It means that not every time when you come to this table will you have a sense of your own brokenness, of your own ugliness, of your own unworthiness. Not every single time when you come do you feel the guilt and shame because there is going to be a time when we will feast with the Lord Jesus Christ because fully and finally has he covered all of our impurities. Because Revelation 19 tells us that when the wedding feast of the Lamb comes, guess what? All evil and sin has to go. Fully and finally. We will be able to eat and drink with our Lord Jesus without the eyes of faith because we're going to be at a party where the wine will never run out and the party is never going to end, where there is going to be unceasing joy and celebration because our hearts will finally be at rest because they've been satisfied fully and finally in Jesus. So what do we do with that? Revelation 19 is showing us that God really wants to spend time with you. That He really does love you. If that wasn't the case, then verse 9 makes absolutely no sense. Because He says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And the angel said to me, These are the true words of God. How have the people of God been able to endure the fallen and broken world in which they inhabit for the past 2,000 years? It's because the invitation to the wedding feast is real. It is a real invitation. So I invite you this morning Because the words of Jesus are true. I invite you to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Where the wine is never going to run out. The party is never going to end. And you will be in the arms of the one who has loved you since before the foundations of the world. Consider that an invitation this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray.